In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leavens, leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his own judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even mutilate themselves. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so direct. It gets right to the heart of the issue. Lord, I pray that you would convict us. Lord, help us to be gentle. Lord, help us to be patient and kind. And yet also help us to be direct. To be willing to speak the truth, as Scripture says, in love. But to speak the truth. Lord, there are so many people that need the truth. Whether it's to bring that person to Jesus Christ for salvation or another Christian who needs to be exhorted. And yet, Lord, sometimes we don't speak the truth, or we water it down simply because we don't want to offend. Again, help us to be bold, help us to be gentle, help us to be humble, but help us to speak the truth. We ask that you would guide our minds, keep us focused. It's easy to let our minds wander. But we're really here to learn your word and then allow your spirit to work its, his job in our hearts. So we ask for conviction in areas that we deeply need conviction in and that we would change and grow for the, for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask this it's in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Galatians 5. Tyler, no, you don't need to go to Tyler. Oh, <laughs> yeah, kids can leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I miss it, they'll leave. You know, I mean, it just. <laughs> We're going to be looking at false teachers today. You'll remember from last week that we were looking at the teaching itself. This week we're looking at the teachers of the false teaching. Last week we looked at the contrast between Christ alone for salvation and trusting in works. This week we're going to look at those who are promoting that. The danger of false teaching. Very, very dangerous. It's dangerous because so often it appears to be the correct teaching. It appears to be true. That's what makes false teaching so dangerous. Not only is it wrong, but it appears to be the truth. I'm reminded of a, a news article a number of years ago. This was decades now. It actually came from Binghamton General Hospital. It, it seemed that there was a number of babies in the maternity ward that died suddenly of unknown causes. It was later determined that in mixing the baby's formula, salt had been added and substituted for the sugar. Though the mixture looked the same, it looked harmless, it caused the death of several infants. See, the gospel, too, can be counterfeited. 
And when it's counterfeited, it's deadly. By the way, when the, when the gospel is counterfeited, it sometimes makes people feel very, very good. A counterfeit gospel is this, that you present Christ, but you present Him as Christ plus. That religion plays a part in your salvation. This is false. I'm, you know, understand I'm saying false. This is counterfeit. But that religion plays a part in your salvation, and that makes people feel good. But again, it's deadly, because Christ plus anything is deadly, is damnation. So again, we're looking at error. And that's what he's been looking at throughout this book. He's moving towards looking at freedom in Christ, which is next, next week, verse 13. Well, actually, it probably won't be next week. It'll probably be in a couple weeks because we have Christmas. But again, this whole idea of do you need to be circumcised? And he said that a number of times in chapter 5, verses 1 to, 1 to 6. By the way, whenever he's talking about circumcision, he's not just talking about the act. He's putting, make, think of circumcision as equal to the law, keeping something, doing something, earning, working, earning your salvation, working out your, uh, working for your salvation. And again, he just kept saying, as we've seen over the months, no, n- nothing but Christ alone can earn, that, that can warrant salvation. It's Christ and Christ alone. But here in verses 7 through 12, um, he looks at the, the person, the, the actual people that are causing the problem, the ones that are actually speaking the error. Again, they're Judaizers, and he says, you ran well. I mean, he's talking to Galatians, he said, man, you did it. man, when you first heard the gospel, you ran well. You really focus on Jesus Christ. And then he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? By the way, I don't believe he's asking actually for the question for the question. So he's not really saying, well, who are they? I think he's already identified them. But I think he's trying to get them to, uh, to think this way. You know, you did so well. You ran so well. Again, Paul likes to use a- athletic terms. Man, you ran so well. How is it that now you're not following Christ? How is it now that you veered? He's trying to get them to see they so easily swayed, so easily veered. That word hindered is an interesting term. It's an athletic term, which makes sense because he said, you ran well. Who hindered you? He's using another athletic term. It refers primarily to setting up an obstacle. It was often used, this word hindered was often used at the ancient Greek games. Uh, Back then, races were not usually run, I don't know if they ever run, around a circle. It was usually to a pole and back. Uh, and again, there were rules against tripping. But sometimes a runner was able to illegally do it, but try to hinder the other runner. Okay, And, he, and he's using this athletic term. He's saying, like, you were running. You were, your focus was on Christ. He's the goal. Being come like Christ-like. Honoring Him, and yet you became hindered. Someone came along and jabbed you, got in your way, and now you're veering off. So that's the, that, that's the idea there. You know, it, someone uh, brought in false teaching, and now you're following that instead of the true teaching. Actually, I was in a race one time. I wasn't a runner. I, I actually hated running. I hope if you like running, man, I, I give you a lot of credit. Every time I ran, my, my, you know, my gut was hurting. It was like, why am I running? So I swam. But, um, but anyways, um, but there was one time that it was very important for me to run this race. Uh, I was dating my wife at practical. And I think I've told you the story a couple of times. But anyways, uh, and we were over at Rich and Mel's. Many of you know my brother and sister-in-law. 
And uh, they, they used to always have at Easter time, they're about uh, like their own Olympics in their yard. You know, and there was like throwing the cow plop or whatever it was and all these other things. It, was, it wasn't, you know, real high intensity. But, but the, the last race, there was like three or four people running this race. And it was to a pole and back. It was actually to a, uh, I think, there, yeah, just a pole and then you had to run up, you know. And it was like the longest race. It was like the most grueling race, you know. For me, it was really hard. But I was, there was two or three others, but one of the other guys that was running was the other guy that liked my wife. So I kind of figured, you know, whoever won this race probably got her hand. <laughs> and uh, so I, I remember, and, and I am an intense person when I have to be. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I know I just had to tell you that. Um, and so anyway, so we ran, and we ran all the way down and, and, you know, got around that pole, you know, at the other. And then we were running, I remember running up that hill, and his name was Rob. And, uh, and Rob came around. He was going to try to, and I basically ran him into the telephone pole. <laughs> and uh, won the race and won her hand. But that's the kind of idea that he's talking about. Who hindered you? Who hindered you? You know, who tripped you up? Who tripped you up, Galatians? You were following Christ so clearly, and who tripped you up? And you know, if you think about it, that happens in a lot of Christians' lives. Maybe not with just heresy and error, I mean, that's part of it, but just tripping them up from focusing specifically on Christ. They get saved, they're, they're excited about their new life in Jesus Christ, they want to walk with God, and then something trips them up. It might be a false teacher. By the way, what trips them up might be, might be the church itself. It might be that they got connected, and I, and I thought they were all perfect. And now I see some of their warts. Um, in fact, I, I, I purposely wanted you to know, I mean, when we brought the members in, we're all imperfect, right? Are we all imperfect? Because I keep coming across certain Christians that somehow thought that we were perfect. And they get frustrated after a few years. They're around and, well, you're not perfect. We're not perfect. And that might trip you up in your Christian walk. Do you see how that might trip you up? You have to be very careful that we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying that we have known sin rampant in our church, but what I'm saying is we are all imperfect. We have to work on our patience with each other. We have to work on our kindness and our gentleness. We have to work on our humility. We're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. So with that, we say, okay, you know, we're going to keep our eyes on Christ. We're going to do the one another, serve our spirit in our, with our spiritual gifts, and move forward. But it's for God's honor. It's not really for my being even comfortable or you being comfortable. In fact, I think that's another thing. When, when God puts you in a group of people, there's going to be friction. That's just part of it. I mean, I always think of it this way. Even, let's take even a, a smaller microcosm than the, even the church, a smaller institution than the church. You really want to grow? Get married. And then be biblical. No, isn't that true? I mean, now all of a sudden, you know, I always love counseling, you know, couples. And, and, and I'm glad to counsel couples that are getting married, but I always think, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> no, we need the... But again, we've got to make sure that we don't get hindered. You don't get hindered if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. The, these people weren't. Look at verse 8. He actually now looks at the error and he tells them very quickly, he gives them the origin, the result, and the end of this error. 
The first is, verse 8, is the origin of this doctrine. And when I mean doctrine, I'm talking about the error. He said this persuasion, in other words, this persuasion, this thinking that you are going to somehow add to your salvation does, does, not, does, does not come from Him, that's God, who calls you. Right? It doesn't come from God. This, this persuasion doesn't come from God. I mean, again, who called them? I mean, it was God that called them, but this error that they're following is from Satan. It, this persuasion doesn't come from God. Paul would say this, I came preaching Christ and Christ alone. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 6 of Galatians, way back in chapter 1, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. No, if you're called to salvation, it's through God, and God presents the, the message of Christ and Christ alone for salvation. So that's the origin of this doctrine. It wasn't from God. It was, you know, this doctrine, this false doctrine. It was from Satan. And then look at the result. He actually moves from an athletic term in verse 7 to a baking term. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, a lump of dough. A little leaven. Again, a bakery term. But, but what is he getting at? By the way, leaven in Scripture is often used of sin. But it can just as well easy, easily be used of um, something good, like it, it talks about the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The idea is this here. Now, again, this is a negative context. This is a, but the idea is this, permeation. That's the key when you, you see the word leaven. It permeates. Sin permeates. How about the kingdom of God? Permeates. Permeates what? People. Ultimately, the world. Okay? But again, it's permeation. That's, what he's, that's why he says a little leaven. Just get a little leaven, put it in a lump of dough. What does it do? It goes through it. We've been learning how to make um, yogurt. Right now we're on this you know, health thing. And so, well, we will be for a long time. But the point is, is this. I found this very interesting. You take milk, just get it to room temperature, throw in a couple teaspoons of uh, existing cultured yogurt. The next day or two days, you got the whole thing is, is yogurt. It permeates. You know, then you then you then you get the fun of adding all the other stuff. You know, like jelly and you know, <laughs> all the sugar. But anyways, the point is, it permeates. The point here is that false teaching, like yeast, grows and affects everything it touches. That's why the elders have to exhort and convict those who are in error, like Titus talks about. We have to be very careful. We Sometimes maybe uh, people look at the elders as being a little bit uh, too, uh, you know, well, you seem to be kind of rigid in certain things. Yes, because we have to look out for error. We have to guard the church. It's easy. It, it, false teaching easily spreads. It's, it's like a single cell of cancer that metastasizes. Yeah, thank you. Until it spreads to the whole physical body. It, it spreads. It, it multiplies. Divide and conquer, right? Just like that single cell of cancer, a false teaching can do the same thing. By the way, false teaching, I'm not just saying that, you know, a false teaching that said Jesus is not the way. False teaching comes in a lot of different forms. It can be as simple as this, that, you know what, um, yeah, you had a part in your salvation. Maybe not works, but that you chose God. no. It says that God chose you. <laughs> You've got to be careful in a lot of aspects when it comes to teaching. 
Here, you could say it this way, a pinch of the law can thoroughly contaminate the whole gospel. Just a pinch of the law. Because I think actually Martin Luther had a really good point. He says in theology, a tiny error overthrows the whole teaching. That's worth remembering. If, if there's error in your thinking, it can overthrow a lot. That's how we are with sin sometimes. We, we take care of a lot of sins, but we leave certain things maybe even... Now, this is not error in teaching, but this is error in living. We can leave certain things in the closet. Well, God doesn't really care about that. That can overthrow you. It just takes one sin. So we have to be very careful on how we live our life. But again, in theology, a tiny error overthrows the whole teaching. It, it made me think, as, we, as I look at that whole lump, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. How does Satan destroy the local church? How does he? Let me give you three ways. I'm not even sure if I put these in your outline. But the first is through heretics. This is obvious. This is what's here in the text. I remember 2 Timothy 2 Remember it says, and that their message, talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, their message will spread like cancer. There again, he uses the actual thing. A person's message can spread like cancer. You know, Satan destroys the church through doctrine, through heretics. That's why 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test. Which means this. If you're going to test the spirits, if you're going to test somebody's doctrine, their teaching, that means you have to judge them. That's, that's a word. Uh, in this last week, I've, I've talked to two different individuals. And one of, one of them, were, were, they were not sure if you should judge. And the scripture is very clear that you must judge. You must discern. See, if I'm going to test the spirits, it means that as, as, as I look at a doctrine, as I look at a teaching, it's either right or it's wrong. You have to judge. Now, Matthew 7 says, judge not lest you be judged. The context is what? Well, first of all, take the beam out of your own eye before you look at someone else's speck. He doesn't say not to look at the speck. He just says, don't be, going, don't be judging as a hypocrite. But again, we have to test the spirits. In fact, Acts... 20, Paul encourages the uh, elders at Ephesus, and he says this, he says, I know that after I leave my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. That's like I eat from without, not sparing the flock. False teachers are going to try to destroy this flock, he says to the elders. I know that. But he also says this, and that also from among yourselves, from within, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. There's going to be you're going to have a constant fight on your hand, Paul says to the elders at Ephesus. You need to be testing the teaching. You need to be willing to judge. See, we have to judge. Now, again, we don't... By the way, we're not supposed to... We're not called to be Christian police. But I'll tell you what, false teaching just kind of hits you. You know, I mean, it, it, it becomes obvious. But you need to be willing to say, no, that's truth and that's error. That's right and that's wrong. Honestly, if an elder can't do that, he shouldn't be an elder. Right? By the way, I'm thankful for all our elders. They're willing to do that. So the first way that Satan destroys the church is through arrogance. The second is through sin. Excuse me, heretic. The second is through sin and arrogance. Sin and arrogance. 
If you go to 1 Corinthians 5, why don't you keep your hand in Galatians 5. Go to 1 Corinthians 5. Here there is an issue of immorality in the church. I mean, actual immorality happening in the church. Paul is very upset with the Corinthians because they're not dealing with it properly. Look at verse 1. Actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, probably stepwife. But, but notice their response. Notice how they're dealing with this sin. And you're puffed up. That's pride. That's arrogance. You're puffed up. In other words, you're tolerating the sin. And, and have not rather, you should be mourning for the person and mourning for the fact that you've allowed this into the church, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, verse 3, as absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. Paul says this, I've already judged it. I mean, if you ever want to have a great verse on, well, how do you know that you're supposed to judge sin? Right there. I mean, he says, I'm not even in your presence. All I know is the information. And with the information, I can tell you what's right and what's wrong. That's very, very powerful. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, based on his glory, for his sake, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved. In other words, pray for God's judgment so that in this life you'll be judged, but that he will turn and repent. By the way, that's church discipline. Or, or to say it a different way, the, the disciplines of being in a church. I like that. I think uh, Eric Fry told me that recently. I think that's how he said it. He says, you know, church discipline sounds so negative. What it is, it's, it's the disciplines of being in a church. It's our responsibility to each other. Or as I think it was uh, Lisa Edwards years ago went to uh, uh, school down south. And, and instead of saying confrontation like church discipline, it was carefrontation. You care enough to confront. You care enough to put the sin out. You care enough? Look at this. He says it again, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leavens leavens the whole lump? It's not good to glory. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Yeah, be very, very careful because sin can permeate, it can destroy. What we think should be expressed in what we do. Or our creed is expressed in our conduct. It has to be. If we promote and proclaim Christ as Lord and holy, we should be holy ourselves. Imperfect, but holy. So again, through arrogance, a church can be destroyed. And then finally, through a whisperer. You have a heretic, you have arrogance and sin, but, but by gossip. I'm, I'm just very concerned about Gossip. It's, it's been on my heart for a number of months even. Um, the reason I say that is, well, this is what Scripture says. A whisperer, which means in, in, in Proverbs 16:28, a bite, backbiter, a murmurer, a slanderer, that's what a whisperer is, separates the best of friends. And sometimes it's with the whisperer that friends are separated. And there is commitment at the front end. I mean, again, I go back to membership. But then there are separation. God loves to have islands, or excuse me, Satan loves to create islands. 
Satan loves to separate you from the body. And I'm not, by the way, saying at all that if someone leaves our church, they're in sin. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. We're imperfect people. And if you have an issue, go to the person, right? I mean, what's the solution to to issues in the church? Again, that carefrontation. If your brother sins, Matthew 18 says, go and tell him his fault. Never tell someone else's fault. Tell the person his fault. Seek to get resolution. Why? Because Proverbs 6 says God hates this one type of thing. Actually, seven things he hates, but one is one who sows discord among the brothers. And I think a lot of times gossip does that. that we don't call it discord, but that's what it is. So again, we have to be very, very careful how we present truth or how we talk. Proverbs 18.8, you might want to write this down. The words of a whisperer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the innermost body. The idea is this, they are quickly believed and enter deeply. This is what's so damaging, because when I say it about someone else, they're not there to defend themselves, and it plants itself very quickly. And it can be as simple as, did you see so-and-so downtown? I wonder why they were there. Why were they at that particular event? You know, and you can plant a lot of seeds very quickly, right? Why did she say that? Why did he look at me like that? So again, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. Let me give you a couple other just practical things. As you're telling him, make sure you're honest. Ephesians 4 says, Let each one of you speak truth. We are members of one another. You remember the four rules of communication that we've been talking about many times first rule of communication is to be honest. So you're honest with and you're actually seeking to resolve. That's how we can grow as a tight body. You're going to see issues where you get frustrated. You're going to be at times let down. Just know that. But if you are willing to go and if it's a sin issue, you go and confront. Maybe it's not a sin issue. I remember one dear lady, she's since actually passed off this earth, but she came to me one time and said, you're ignoring me. I said, I no, I don't, I don't mean to. I mean, I, I wasn't purposely ignoring you. She said, you're ignoring me. And I, you know, I, I took that as a, an admonition, and I started paying attention to her. All she meant was this. She'd be walking down the hall, and this was a number of years ago. As a young pastor, I always found myself focused, real focused on Sunday morning. And so people can walk by me, and I don't even acknowledge them. And that was something the Lord used in my life to really say, hey, listen, you need to make sure you focus on people, right? I was glad. It was Carol Bratt. Uh, you might remember Carol. And, but I, you know what? I re- really appreciate, Carol, that she was willing to say it. And she said it honestly, you know? And it was something that I started realizing. When I said, I've got to make sure I'm paying attention. Because <laughs> then other people told me the same thing. You don't <laughs> So it was a problem, I think. But the last thing, as you try to solve these issues, now again, sinful, if it's sinful, it's Matthew 18. It might just be an honesty thing like Carol. But, but the point is this, and this is another rule of communication. It's the third one. Attack the problem, not the person. Attack the problem. Okay? Don't, don't have garbage words come out of your mouth, Ephesians 4.28 says. Corrupt words. No, say words that are edifying. Say words that build up. Say words that impart grace. You know what? Uh, solving issues is really quite simple. Isn't it quite simple? If you can get over this one issue, that, you know what, I'm doing all this for the glory of God. If you can get past that issue, 
Then you can reach out and not have fear man in you and be able to be open and vulnerable and transparent and say, this is what I see. Can you give me insight? Maybe what you're doing is sinful, maybe not. But you're doing it out of a gracious heart. It's really quite simple to open your mouth, but it isn't when you have fear because then you want to tell others but not the person. And it really creates a lot of, a lot of uh, damage in the church. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It can be done through doctrine. It can be done through sin and arrogance. It can be done through gossip. A little leaven really permeates. Finally, he ends with the, the end of this doctrine. Verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. This is the end of false teaching. This is the end of the false teacher. Notice here that the nature of evil is that it will spread, but it will not ultimately triumph. See, I have this confidence in you that you will have no other mind. In other words, you're going to get back on track, but this person will be judged. This person will be judged. He who troubles you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Okay? I mean, that's a real optimistic thought, really. Truth will prevail. By the way, truth will always prevail. In the end, truth prevails. But the other part is false teachers will be judged. They're not going to be let off the hook. That's, to me, optimistic. That's the end of the doctrine. False teaching happens. God's truth still marches on. Do you you realize that 2,000, well, more than 2,000, but just from the New Testament, all the false doctrine that has been thrown up at the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it still remains pure. It marches on. So again, be careful. Let's work together as a body of believers to honor the Lord. Well, let's look at a third or second question. Why is Christianity's cross so offensive? And you see this in verse 11. He actually changes gears and he says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? I mean, if I'm preaching what the Judaizers, apparently the Judaizers were saying, well, actually, Paul preaches something like us. But he says, why do I suffer persecution? But the part that I want to zero in on is that second part of verse 11. Then the offense of the cross has, been, has ceased. The offense of the cross, the offense of the cross. When I read that, I just thought, you know, isn't that, an, uh, isn't that a curious statement? The offense of the cross. And my question is this, why is Christianity's cross so offensive? I mean, why is the cross, which is grace, salvation through Christ alone, why is that so offensive to the natural mind? Why does it arouse within the natural man a fierce opposition to that? By the way, it does. I mean, a lot of the wars that are even happening to this day is against Christians and it's against the gospel because it is so offensive to the others who are persecuting. The cross is offensive. Now, when you think of the cross, you can think of it in two parts. First of all, just the cross itself. Just the death. Okay? Like you go back to first century. Go back to Roman times. I mean, this is how the cross, someone hanging on a cross was looked upon. It was brutal, it was disgusting, it was gruesome, it was cruel, it was the cruelest of executions. I think the cross started with the Persians. I mean, it was just totally disgusting that someone would hang on a cross. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says that Christ has called me to preach the gospel, which is the cross of Christ. 
Now think about this. Something that is so repulsive in that society, Paul keeps saying, that's what I was told to preach, the cross of Christ. That 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the cross. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. It's interesting. The word stumbling block means scandal. It's the same exact word as offense in verse 11 of Galatians 5. It's an offense. To the Jews, it's an offense. It's a scandal, scandal on. To the Greek mind, it was moros, moronic. Someone dying on a cross can save me? And yet, Galatians 3, and we looked at that a few months ago, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, the cross was a symbol. By the way, we've tamed the cross. Some of you have the cross on right now. You wear the cross, you wear the cross. You have the cross tattooed, who knows, right? That's been tamed. Back in that day and age, you wouldn't wear a cross. I mean, that was, a pagan would never. I mean, that was just looked at, that was the worst of the worst. Again, Jesus Christ died on a God-forsaken cross. I mean, the wrath of God was placed on him. One man wrote this, The cross of Christianity was a scandal. Both Jews and Gentiles viewed crucifixion, a penalty reserved only for the worst of criminals, as the ultimate emblem of disgrace and dishonor. Polite pagans never mentioned the equivalent of the English word cross. Never. The loathsome word was so obscene that in Latin, crux, which is for cross, was a swear word. It was an actual swear word. You wouldn't... And in the sophisticated Greek environment, the preaching of the cross again was absurd. It was foolish. It was moronic. The idea of a Jewish peasant becoming the substitutionary atonement for people's sins was laughable. Worse yet, a crucified Messiah was scandalous, blasphemous. It was bizarre. I mean, think about all that we... But this is the question, though. Why did the first Christians call attention to the fact that Jesus died on a cross? And they did over and over again. If it was such an offense, why did they keep going back to it? Because it actually heightened the offense. The idea was this. If you want to follow Christ, understand that he died on that which you think is so blasphemous, that you think is so beyond. No, that was the plan of salvation right there. They actually heightened the offense by speaking of it. Well, that was the actual death. That, that's what the cross, that was actually how people looked at dying on the cross. But let me go one step farther and saying, what does the cross say? In other words, what does the cross proclaim? What does the death of Jesus Christ on the cross proclaim to us? And these are, I think I did leave them in your outline. There are three. The cross says you are not righteous. That's the first thing it proclaims loud and clear. You are not righteous. You are a sinner. And as a sinner before a holy God, you are condemned. In other words, you're not partially good. You're totally condemned. That you do not measure up to God's perfect standard. You are under God's judgment. The cross says Jesus had to die because of your sins. By the way, he died for humanity. More particular, he died for you. He died for you. So that's the first thing that the cross proclaims, that you're not righteous. Boy, doesn't that get a natural man's dander up? 
don't you tell me that I'm condemned. Maybe a little bad, blankety-blank, but don't tell me, you know. And they go on with life. The second thing is the cross also says you are helpless. It's not only that you're not righteous, but you're helpless in the process. See, okay, I'm not righteous. Can I really work my way? No, no, you're helpless. By the way, this is incorrect. It was, there was a study uh, or a survey done. I'm not big into surveys, but there was a survey done among Christians years ago by Barna. And I think like 50 or 60% of Christians agreed with this statement, that God helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Because the cross says you cannot get to heaven on your own strength or your own merit. You must abandon yourself. You need someone else to offer his perfect life on your behalf. In other words, he needs to become your substitute. Not only are you not righteous, but you're going to stay in that position without something that God does. See, the cross says that God gives us his righteousness that no religion can do that. On the cross, Christ died for our sins, but when we receive Jesus Christ, He takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. And the final thing the cross says is that you are helpless, or excuse me, hopeless. The cross of Christ shows us that sin deserves the wrath and the curse of God. Every sin deserves condemnation. You break the law in one point, guilty of all. It proves that without Christ, sinners will perish for their sins. Again, the cross says that salvation comes only by grace of God in Christ Jesus alone. So it really becomes human achievement. That's man's religions. All the man's religions, human achievement. I'm doing something. I'm keeping five pillars or seven sacraments. I'm doing something. Maybe God helped me along the process, but I'm doing something. Versus the cross, God's achievement. God's achievement. Do you see that why that's so offensive? I mean, if someone really grabs a hold of what's happening here, oh, you're telling me I'm not righteous? You're telling me that I'm helpless to resolve it? You're telling me that I'm hopeless in this? You're telling me there's nothing I can do? Yep, nothing you can do except to look to the cross, look to what Christ did for you on the cross. Philip Ryken said this, the problem with most Christians is that we don't know when to be offensive. We want to fit in our culture. We want people to like us. At the very best, we don't want people to, to, I mean, we don't want to offend anyone. And as a result, we end up getting rid of the very thing that is supposed to offend people, and that is Jesus Christ crucified. Sometimes we talk about the love of God. In fact, by the way, God loves us. I mean, this whole process, why would... If you ever want to see a really neat video, is uh, Francis Chan, and I think it's the third one. He talks about the love of God and how, you know, can you imagine your own child? Can, you, can I imagine one of my children being nailed to the brutal cross for someone else? I mean, that shows God's love, right? But the reality is he did that because of his wrath and hatred for sin. Yes, he, uh, he chooses. Yes, he calls. Yes, he seeks. But it's, it's through his love but the other side is we were helpless and hopeless and sinners. That offends. That offends. By the way, when we say that we should offend, I don't, I, I'm saying the message offends. We don't have to be personally offensive. In fact, you should be personally gracious and, and uh, patient. But the, the message itself should offend, should like hit the heart and say, you're, oh, you're saying that I, 
I can't earn my way. And that's why you take other world religions that hate Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is an exclusive. It says only through Christ, Him alone. And all that you're doing is for, for no advantage before a holy God. They hate that. What do you mean not everything I've... Everything I've lived for, everything that my parents have lived for. I, my, my family's been in this religion for 565 years. All for naught. That's why it's offensive. And then finally, the final question, just very quickly. Look at verse 12. I could wish, now these he's talking to the Judaizers, the false teachers, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. He's talking about circumcision. He's talking about mutilation. He's actually talking about castration. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do, you know, circumcision, just cut it all off. You know, better for them. Boy, that, by the way, there was uh, some uh, cults, one of which was Cybele, and they did that. Okay, castrated themselves. That was part of their worship of God. Okay, their God, not true God. But some people would look at this statement and say, boy, that's a pretty crude statement. (laughs) It's pretty harsh, pretty reprehensible. Well, until you start understanding what Paul is saying, listen, these people are leading you to hell. In fact, John Stott said this, a famous preacher over in England. He said this, If we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish that the false teachers might cease from the land. Yeah, go ahead. Not only that, but just die. Boy, that's not nice. I I looked up one verse in uh, Psalms. You know, Psalms 5 says this, You hate God. David speaking of God. You hate all workers of iniquity. I think we need to get passionate about truth. I think we need to get passionate about the fact there are those who are teaching non-truth, error that are causing people, bringing them right to hell. So was Paul, was this an unkind statement? No, he was a very true, passionate statement. But again, I thought Christians should be nice. Aren't we called to be nice? I mean, isn't God nice? Well, like I said, it says of God that he hates all workers of iniquity. Again, Christians are to be loving and kind and gentle and humble and patient. I don't like the word nice. In fact, let me just close with this one comment. It's, the guy said this. How does this idea of nice play, out, play itself out in Christianity with God and the church? How, how does this idea, if you, if, you, if, you, you know, if you buy into this idea of being nice, what's going to happen? Well, let's apply this concept, this sentimental view of being nice, of of really emphasizing love but not justice, how does it apply to God? Applied to God, the sentimental view of love generates a deity with all the awesome holiness of a cuddly toy, all the moral integrity of a marshmallow. He just doesn't have any punch. If you apply this Concept to Christians, the sentimental view breeds expectations of transcendental niceness. I mean, whatever else Christians should be, they should be nice. Where niceness means smiling a lot and never ever hinting that anyone may be wrong about anything because that isn't nice. You can't point out sin because that's not nice. You can't point out that they're wrong. That's not nice. In the local church, it means abandoning church discipline because, well, it's not nice. 
And in many contexts, it means restoring adulterers, for instance, to the pastoral office at the mere hint of broken repentance. After all, isn't the church about forgiveness? Aren't we supposed to love one another? And doesn't that mean, above all, that we should be nice? Similarly, with respect to doctrine, the letter kills while the Spirit gives life, and everyone knows that the Spirit is nice. So let us love one another and refrain from becoming up, uptight and upright about this divisive thing called doctrine. End quote. And again, it's all sarcastic, right? I mean, don't say amen to this. See, we're not called to be nice. We're, spo- we're called to speak the truth in love. Okay? But again, when Paul says, verse 12, I wish they'd just cut themselves. It's not nice, but again, Paul's talking about truth. And I think sometimes even us, we should, we should, we should speak truth and maybe even speak it stronger. Some might say, well, that's offensive. Oh, you're, you're making statements that are, are black and white. Well, that's truth. That's doctrine. Again, you can say it in gentleness and love and concern. By the way, you should. Today at ABF, we had our prayer time, and one of the people that were praying broke down as they were talking about people that needed Christ. I mean, it should hit our hearts deeply that there are people going to hell, right? That should break our hearts. In fact, as she was praying, I thought, you know, it doesn't break my heart all the time. Okay? So we need to be gentle and humble. But we need to speak the truth out of a heart of love. Speak the truth out of a heart of love. I mean, love says, you know, I love God, I'm going to say it. I love you, and I'm going to say it. But I'm going to say it clearly. I'm not going to couch it so that you don't get offended because the gospel itself is offensive. If it, if it really hits the heart, it's going to be offensive. Now, as soon as it beca- is offensive to a person, they may grasp it. Yes, thank you for telling me. Yes, I will submit to Christ. Yes, I want to receive Christ. Well, that's a heart that the Spirit of God has worked on and they receive Christ. And, and they will hug you and I am so glad you told me. But that initial, when it hits the unsaved heart, is offensive. And yet we're still called to tell truth, right? Speak the truth in love. Let's stand as we worship him. Passage by saying, you ran well, who hindered you? He was looking at a group. But that question should be asked of you. You ran well. But the question is, are you still running well? Are you still running well for Christ? Is your focus still on the Lord Jesus? Is it still focused on glorifying him? Or, or is there something that's hindering you? Now again, it might be false teaching. Oh, that's hard to track. That's why you actually need to be the one in others. But is there a sin that's hindering you? Is there something in your life that you keep confessing, but you're not forsaking? Proverbs 28. Is there something in your life, maybe a sin, that you just keep running back to, or maybe not looking at as being that bad, but yet it's really hindering you, running you off course. In other words, you're not taking something serious in your life that you know it's there. Is there anything like that? Is is it maybe how you use your tongue? How you seek to maybe even hurt? Again, I would encourage you not only to confess it, but to forsake. Okay. And and before I close, I just want you to ask God that one thing. Lord, is there something that's hindering me? Maybe it's a lack of discipline. I keep saying I'm going to get into the Word. I don't. I keep saying I'm going to pray. I don't. I keep saying I'm going to reach out to that neighbor or that friend, and Thanksgiving has gone by, and Christmas is here coming. 
And I still haven't reached out, and yet you keep telling me, reach out. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what's hindering you, if there is anything that's hindering you. But I would ask that you would ask God before I close, Lord, reveal to me if there needs to be changes in my life, because I want to run well for you. I want to honor you. Let's bow our heads, and just you can spend a moment asking God. We thank you for today. Again, we... We thank you for this body of believers and those who have come in as new members. May we run well together. And yet, Lord, if there is something in our individual lives that needs to change, maybe it's something that you have reminded us of, you have convicted us of over and over again, and we just haven't gotten serious about it. Oh, we keep confessing it, but we really haven't taken it off the table and, and forsaken it. Lord, I pray that we would get serious about walking with you. You tell us that we should love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should be willing to put these things out of our lives and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is. Lord, I pray that we would have that commitment, not just here at this moment, but throughout our life, throughout this week. Lord, if we need to live differently, I pray that we make commitments to do so. I pray that you would continue to remind us of these lessons that they would transform us to become more like the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.